We want to hear your voices on EcoCast. We're going to be doing a special quick fictions episode featuring very short creative pieces of 300 words or less with environmental themes. Now, you may have heard of flash fiction, but our version is in collaboration with Professor Nicholas Royal from the University of Sussex in England. He has been running quick fictions events at Sussex for many years now, and he says the following about the idea. Quick fictions are the writing of our time. Quick means alive, vigorous, sharp, agile, perceptive, swift, even impatient, but also sensitive and vulnerable, like quick flesh. Quick fictions are funny, poignant, dark, sad, romantic, strange. They take us to the very quick of things. A quick fiction is not a narrative rushed out like a telegram, tweet or text message. It is a product of labour and love. A brief work composed, revised, sharpened and tightened in order to be enduring and memorable. Something to carry with you every day. And so we're looking for thoughtful, arresting pieces about ecological issues, climate breakdown or mass extinction. An eco-quick fiction might be quick cli-fi, quick nature writing, quick neo-pastoral, or it might be a prose poem that reflects on local or global environmental crises. So, if you're interested, submit your eco-quick fictions, up to 300 words in length but much shorter is also very welcome, to the link in the show notes by the 15th of May. Our favourites will feature in a special episode of EcoCast and later be published on the Quick Fictions website at quickfiction.co.uk. We're looking forward to receiving your submissions. Environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This This is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. So hello and welcome. Today's guests are Heather Duncan and Elena Gold. Um, hi to both of you and thank you so much for coming on to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Um, so Heather Duncan holds a doctorate in English from the State University of New York at Buffalo. She has since worked as an assistant professor of English at United International College in Zhuhai, China, and is now a full-time lecturer in the Writing and Critical Inquiry Programme at State University New York, Albany. Her research focuses on new weird science fiction, eco-horror and environmental ethics. Eleanor Gold also holds a doctorate in English from State University New York Buffalo and her dissertation focused on speculative and experimental fiction in the Anthropocene and she now works in marketing. So we'll get uh, straight into root words. Um, For an episode on Dungeons and Dragons I assume that everyone would feel a little bit shortchanged if I didn't delve into the roots of the words dungeon and dragon. Um, But before I very predictably do, I want to give a little disclaimer, um, which is that 
I have never played Dungeons and Dragons, nor do I know anything about it beyond the name. So if anything that I say regarding the roots of these words <laughs> contradicts or just doesn't quite fit with the game, I am sorry in advance. Um, but let's get into it. So the word dungeon comes from the Latin dominus, meaning lord. Um, it names the place from or through which you can assert your dominion, your lordship, either by protecting yourself in the sense of the dungeon as a fortified keep in the centre of a castle, or by confining prisoners in the now more common sense of the underground chamber. The word dragon, meanwhile, comes from the Greek drakon, which comes from a root meaning to see clearly. Now, this might at first seem a rather strange etymology. How did the Greeks get from seeing clearly to the mythical serpentine or reptilian winged creature that we call a dragon? Does a dragon help us to see clearly? Well, perhaps another etymology might help us to see a little more clearly as to how this could be. The word monster comes from the Latin monere, meaning to warn, or monstrere, meaning to show or to point out. It's the same root as the word demonstrate. So a monster, like a dragon, has something to do with showing something, with enabling clear sight. And now this is my own interpretation, but I would say that the reason that monsters and dragons have to do with warning or demonstrating or seeing clearly lies in their status as dangerous and threatening creatures. Monsters and dragons are the literal embodiment of human fears and anxieties. What they show or reveal to us is the limits of our power, or to put it another way, they show us the limits of our dominion. The dragon, that is to say, always undoes the power of the dungeon. The dragon helps us to see clearly the fallibility of any dominion we might think we have. So, as I said, I really have no idea as to whether any of what I just said is relevant to Dungeons and Dragons the game. Um, so, Heather and Eleanor, perhaps you can begin by giving me and our listeners um, a brief overview of what it's all about, um, especially for anyone who, like me, isn't at all familiar with the game. I just want to start off by saying how fantastic that was and how I think thematically appropriate it certainly will be to this conversation, um, particularly this discussion of limits and de uh, demonstrating things and kind of figuring out um, where, you know, lim limits of imagination and kind of what, what happens beyond that. Um, so thank you so much. That was very, that was really, really cool. Um, so to start off kind of brief overview of Dungeons and Dragons um, specifically, which I will probably spend less time on and tabletop role-playing games more generally, um, Dungeons and Dragons uh, was originally published in 1974. Gary Gygax, Dave Arneson, you know, the whole Wizards of the Coast conglomerate that that now exists. Um, and the core focus of that particular game is you are a band of scrappy adventurers heading into the wilds to defeat evil um, or become it, 
uh, depending on the type of game you are playing. Um, there are, it's, it's one of those Dungeons and Dragons is specifically a um, system. Uh, so it is a core rule set, um, a, a style of play. And within that style of play, which uh, is, is defined by the techniques that are used at the table and the type of dice you use, the way your characters are defined, the way that encounters work, um, all of these sorts of things that, that are just, this is, these are the rules that you have agreed to when you show up at a table with your pen and your paper and your dice um, to play a game. But, and it's one of the most well-known systems, but even within Dungeons and Dragons, there are dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of unique settings and styles of play, if not techniques. Um, and that's not even getting into the kind of massive and still growing cottage industry of homebrew content that encompasses everything's, everything from settings to techniques, to crafts, to handmade products, to, you know, anything that you could possibly want. Tabletop role-playing games, of which Dungeons & Dragons is just one uh, form, are role-playing games where players take on the part of characters or groups of characters um, in a fictional setting and describe their actions via speech. It's, it's because tabletop role-playing games are such a just absolutely massive, sprawling form, um, there are just as many that don't require dice, that don't require a GM or a DM um, as there are. Wait, 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 hold up. What's a, what's a GM? What's a DM? A GM <laughs> and a DM, um, kind of interchangeable, dungeon master, game master. Um, so I'll probably be using the acronym GM fairly frequently. That is the, in Dungeons and Dragons, that is the person who uh, is kind of the narrator. Basically, with the with the players, um, where the players are playing individual characters, the GM is often playing every single other thing they encounter, whether it's the environment, animals, uh, strange mythical creatures, other sentient beings. Um, they are the ones who who are in charge of kind of basically wrangling the players into a particular direction, <laughs> a plot. Yeah. Of I, th some so I think maybe a good analogy for most of our listeners uh, would be teacher and students, right? That the teacher is kind of responsible for uh, building the lesson, for coordinating all the kind of information. Uh, but then the students are the ones actually interacting with that. They're doing those things. And then the teacher says, "Like, oh, you want to do this? Okay, well, let's let's do that." And so they're kind of the the guide for what the players want to do, um, but they're responsible for for pretty much everything um, that that kind of the players are allowed to do, and and kind of um, whether it's interacting with other characters or, or things like that. But I think like maybe teacher one one that that one kind of sole leader role. Um, and then everybody else is kind of the interactive piece doing um, things that are, are coordinated, but also individual. Um, I don't know if that helps or, or makes it worse, but. That, no, that is, that is, um, well, yeah, hopefully, I, um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I just wanted to uh, kind of piggyback off of what Brandon just said about the game master or dungeon master being um, like the teacher in the classroom. And I just wanted to kind of add to that. I think actually that I would just say that 
that's like what we hope for in an ideal classroom. <laughs> um, because sure, one of sure. the things that, yeah, <laughs> one of the things that, that, um, that interested me about uh, playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons with Eleanor and with uh, three of our other friends um, are these sort of like pedagogical opportunities that it presents. Um, and I think one thing that distinguishes the sort of game master player relationship from the traditional pedagogical relationship is that this, the players or the students get to sort of say what they want to do and get to kind of direct the direction that the class is going in. Um, and I think that that's not really like the traditional relationship um, that is set up in a, in a classroom. Um, although, you know, I would say that that's what we want students to be doing. We want them to be telling us where they want to go and then we want to be guiding them there. Um, and I will say that mm -hmm. Eleanor as a dungeon master is absolutely fantastic at this. Um, and she has really created the world of our campaign in response to the places that we have um, either consciously or unconsciously tried to take the game. So, um, And to piggyback off that even further, um, the... I, I would kind of want to extend the analogy, perhaps, because as I mentioned, there are some there are many forms of tabletop role playing games that require neither dice nor a game master. And those um, the ones the the style of play that doesn't require a game master might be analogous to something like a writing workshop where everyone is expected to kind of come with their own goals and a cooperative, collaborative mindset to kind of make the experience as productive and, uh, uh, and, and, and fruitful, uh, generative. I don't know what the, the right potential word there might be um, for every member of the workshop, where it really does require on this kind of flattened relationship between every member. Um, and that is one, actually, that is one of the uh, many critiques that's that's leveled against Dungeons and Dragons and, and uh, games like it um, is this kind of top-down directive uh, mm -hmm. mode of play, um, which, however, might be, in some cases, more suitable for a pedagogical section to have uh, uh, <laughs> that kind of direction. Okay, so... I feel like I've got a small amount of knowledge now, although I'm sure I'm going to have many more questions as we go in. Um, but can you explain to us why why are we talking about this on EcoCast? So you've talked about pedagogy a little bit, but but given that we're doing this for ASLI, the study of literature and the environment, what what has Dungeons and Dragons got to do with that? Just to kind of back up a little bit about, uh, yeah, how we got here. Um, I got interested in, um, well, I, I would I would say in in just new approaches because um, as someone who I'm I am now teaching in um, the the writing and critical inquiry program at Albany, which is um, essentially kind of an expanded first year writing program. So it's first year writing, but it's more than that. It's also teaching them how to think critically, um, how to kind of, um, acclimatize to academic culture and to this idea of what inquiry is, 
um, and how we do it in, in uh, academia. Um, and so one of the ways that we approach that is by using themes um, because it kind of centers the class and gives us something in common that we can all discuss together. And so for me, because my background is uh, in eco-criticism, um, I am you know, always using some sort of environmental theme. Um, this semester, I'm trying to teach uh, interdisciplinarity as both a concept and as a skill set. Uh, so that's what I've been focusing on this semester. But um, I've also taught other courses as well. I've taught environmental writing uh, or environmental literature. Um, I've taught similar courses to what I'm doing now at other institutions as well. Um, and consistently, I feel like the struggle with teaching eco-criticism, or even just like environmental themes in general to undergraduates, is that regardless of how great your syllabus is, and you know, all of there's so many good texts out there that are accessible to undergraduates. But the problem that I've seen is that the richness of the discussion is never quite what I want it to be. Um, even in fantastic classes with great students, I feel like it always kind of boils down to this sort of like almost a self-flagellating attitude that students will develop where they'll sort of go back to this line of like, yes, humans are terrible. We've done terrible things to the earth. Um, we need to protect the planet. And so thinking about um, Dungeons and Dragons or tabletop role playing games more broadly um, became a way of like thinking about how do how can we overcome this like sort of black and white narrative that we always end up like reverting to uh, in the classroom when we're talking about the environment. Um, and I actually first became interested in the idea of some sort of role playing game uh, as a result of being given this teaching assignment when I was working in Zhuhai at uh, United International College. Uh, I was sort of thrown into teaching this practicum course where the end result had to be our department's literary magazine. Um, and I had no experience with this whatsoever. The closest, um, you know, experience I had working on a publication was back in high school. Um, so I had to figure out how, how am I going to do this practicum when I have like no knowledge <laughs> of how to do this. So basically what I ended up doing, although perhaps I was not super aware of it at the time, was setting up a big role playing game for my students. Um, and so, you know, we very early on, um, you know, established like who was the chief editor, um, who were the copy editors, you know, who was in charge of layout, who was in charge of um, the artwork for the literary magazine and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and my role in that class was basically to, you know, say, hey, I don't actually really know what we're doing. Um, you guys are going to figure that out and you're going to tell me what you need. Um, and then I'm going to do my best to help you with that. And so it turned into really like essentially a role playing game, except that we were producing something very real, <laughs> which was a magazine. Um, and it completely changed my um, sort of ideas about what a classroom should look like. I mean, it felt very wrong at times in the sense that like, um, you know, that flipped relationship where you're giving students control can be very scary because it's something that we're sort of, I think even if we do, you know, theoretically, you know, understand the importance of student agency and things like that, it's still un uncomfortable because we're not used to that. We weren't, you know, when we went to school, it wasn't like that. 
Um, but it ended up just being so generative and also kind of helped a lot of my students realize that they were good at things that they didn't even know they were good at. Um, there was like one, one of my students in particular struggled a lot with her language skills. Um, and so she was always very shy about ha- like sharing her written work and, and um, giving and getting feedback. But as time went on, she actually became like one of the best copy editors in the class um, to the point that other students were seeking her out. Um, so all of these great things happened that semester. And the, the final result was, you know, beyond anything that I could have come up with myself. Um, and so it was this idea of, of almost like crowdsourced uh, role playing in the classroom. Um, and then as I got into listening to um, D&D podcasts and then later eventually participating in the campaign that we're still playing now, I started sort of like putting all of these things together and thinking like, yeah, this could be a really interesting way um, to run a classroom and possibly a way to also kind of change these sort of stale conversations that I feel like we always end up having in the classroom when it comes to, um, you know, things like environmental justice or climate change. Um, So that was sort of how I got into all of this as um, someone who teaches undergraduates. Um, So can you just explain a little bit more about how kind of thinking about environmental justice and climate change actually fits in with Dungeons and Dragons? Like, how how do you get that into the game? Or how does the game help you explore those things? One of the things that I do kind of want to start off with a caveat is that when it comes to pedagogy and when it comes to using RPGs in the classroom, I do not know that D&D is perhaps the best one for that because of how complex its rule set is. But RPGs in general are yet another tool for instructors to use and are perhaps particularly useful because of the way they allow for this kind of speculative collaborative storytelling um, that is where it's necessary for your students to cooperate and to work together to tell a story and to explore themes and, and possibilities that are sometimes difficult to do alone when you're not playing off of someone um, and are also perhaps difficult to do in um, and in kind of writing assignments that are more often used in classroom settings. Because the fantastical element of it allows not just for you as a player, you very general you as a player to create a character who can very clearly affect a fantasy world, but also allows for the kinds of speculative elements that science fiction and fantasy do where metaphors of nature can be literalized to an extent that they can be interacted with in this imaginative mode. And Heather can speak more to the the research behind this, but a lot of the research that goes into the utility of teaching um, video games and and kind of what video games are good for, quote unquote, is also true of tabletop role-playing games with 
a very clear added social element. And I find that especially useful for thinking about environmental narratives in my games because it can be very difficult in real life to see how effective, and particularly now, um, to see how effective social bonds are at affecting change in the real world. Um, But in a fantasy narrative, you can see that and you can kind of create that in a very clear way that can, does not always, but can allow you to see how that works in the real world. Yeah. I, I wanna, I'm going to just kind of um, piggyback and chime in a little bit too. Cause so, uh, I mean, for, for people who aren't aware, um, I am uh, a, a big uh, gamer myself. Um, I am a big proponent of bringing games into the classroom. Um, I mean, I, I, I've been working on um, at my own kind of homebrew uh, role-playing uh, kind of, kind of generic rule set that, um, you know, teach, teachers could essentially apply to works of literature um, so that students can kind of quote unquote play um, that particular thing. Uh, and for me, um, I think one of the, one of the things I like the most about games, and this is kind of, I, I think just maybe trying to elaborate a little bit on what you were just talking about is um, both that kind especially something like, like a tabletop role-playing game, which isn't necessarily limit. It's only limited by imagination um, as opposed to something like a video game is, is limited by its uh, the, the hardware you're using. Um, there, there are boundaries um, built into that. Um, and I think that that's related to, to what you were talking about with, with something like Dungeons and Dragons, which um, is, is certainly limited in certain ways. Cause it's, it's, you know, it's a fantasy setting. It's, it's um, you know, that, that maybe, thinking about the real world context of environment aren't there. Um, but the other thing for me for, for games, especially when thinking about um, um, in, environmental um, ideas is this idea of simulation and particularly um, simulating possibilities uh, where we can, we can think about and, and actually kind of engage with um Ideas about uh, destruction, ideas about, um, you know, kind of the the real consequences of this stuff without necessarily having to um, go through with them, if that makes sense. So essentially they're they're lab simulations, right, that we can say, okay, well, what what might happen if – we don't stop doing this. And so we can get, get our students to engage with um, possible futures and, and things like that um, related to, to kind of those environmentally destructive ideas without having to actually engage um, with those environmentally dis- destructive practices, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think like for me, it's, it's, it's really, again, it's about those um, – the, the possibilities of, of thinking through imaginatively towards um, solutions. And, 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 and again, I think too, just that idea of collaboration, right? That it's, it's, a, it's a group of students or it's a group of people working together towards a particular objective um, as opposed to a very individualized um, kind of set of, of expectations. I know that wasn't really a question. That was me just kind of, kind of talking, but um, I don't know if there was anything in there that you want to pick up on or. I'd love to, to uh, pick up where you left off there. Actually. Um, there's, there's, there's two things that I wanted to mention. Um, 
off of what Brandon just said, but one is that, um, Brandon, you called it uh, kind of like a lab, I think, at one point, <laughs> but it's sort of like a place where you can experiment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just wanted to point out that like this idea, it's it's actually a, a pretty old idea. It's something that the uh, the sciences in particular have been doing for a very long time now. This idea of simulations or uh, problem-based learning goes back at least to the 1980s. Um, uh, so this is something that STEM has been for a very long time and using very effectively. I mean, there's there's no shortage of studies out there that show that problem-based learning is and experiential learning is much more effective at teaching than say, um, you know, lecture-based teaching models are. Um, so I think that this is one way that the humanities, which, you know, are sort of seen as being um, like, you know, we, we don't do experiments or, you know, that that's something that's sort of beyond the purview of the humanities. I think um, tabletop role-playing games kind of trouble that idea and give us tools that other disciplines have had for a very long time and have been using very effectively. Um, you know, we can do sort of some of the same things. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention in there um, was that, you know, for me, I think kind of what I was alluding to in my frustrations over the conversations about the environment that I've had with students is that one thing that's really missing from them is this idea of pleasure and of play, because I think I called it earlier a self-flagellating attitude that we tend to have. Um, and it's something that I think, you know, students sort of default to because it's it's part of a narrative that is very prevalent in public rhetoric. Um, but, um, you know, Stacey Alimo is one of my personal favorite uh, eco-critics, and she writes a lot about um, bringing pleasure into these discourses about the environment. And I think that's something that tabletop role-playing games can do really, really well. Um, you know, one, one way to uh, define role-playing games, um, this is actually a quote from um, Jesse Schell, who is like a games um, scholar, but um, he calls it a, a game is a problem-solving activity approached with a playful attitude. And I think that playful attitude is kind of what I personally am looking to bring into the classroom, um, you know, this sense that like, yes, we're talking about things that are very, you know, upsetting at times, um, but that we can also find ways to enjoy those narratives. Um, and personally, um, I'm, I'm also working on developing a um, TTRPG for, for a, a future semester when hopefully we are face to face and not learning virtually as we are now. Um, but I was inspired by Octavia Butler's, um, parable, parables books, um, mm. and, and the kind of communities that are represented in her novels. Um, and, and that's sort of like the basis for a kind of like post apocalyptic, post climate disaster game that I'm trying to develop for my undergrads. Um, but I think that like those books do a great job of emphasizing pleasure and play and, and how they are, they are so crucial to any sort of uh, positive change or like when it comes to, um, you know, just society in general, but particularly with the way that we look at our relationship to the environment. So um, those are the two things that I, that I wanted to add. And one more thing that I want to discuss, too, is, is a lot of what we have been talking about and kind of a lot of what we, uh, Heather and I prepared, um, 
has to do with with these sort of system-wide aspects and climate and the environment writ large. But one of the things that I personally am most interested in terms of representing in the games that I run is um, is the non-human and is kind of non, non-human sentience, non-human sapience, kind of what that looks like um, and what it might be to consider how cultures or societies look like when there are not, there is not just one kind of sentience represented in it. Um, And that is a challenge because again, I'm a human being. I don't know what it's like to, for example, be a bat. Um, But the delight and the pleasure of RPGs is in some ways, how can you think of representing that and how can you think of embodying that without making it into a punchline, um, which it so often is in still a lot of science fiction narratives um, is, you know, oh, thinking, thinking of what it might be to be some kind of alien often boils down to a joke. But what if it didn't have to? And that, I think, is the the challenge and the opportunity of um, of role-playing games is to be able to imagine another mode of existence that is not delivered to you the way that it is in a video game, say, that that you can create from what you want it to be. Yeah, or or a novel for that matter, because I think, you know, one of the, the things that we try to do in the classroom is to use um, literature, you know, and, and Eleanor and I both have a literature background, um, but, uh, you know, we try to use literature to try to teach those empathy skills. It's kind of the way that I like to think about it. You know, that, that uh, ability to put yourself in the shoes of either a character or, um, you know, another human character or a non-human character. But I think that even with literature, there's this sense of, you know, you're, you're on the, once you get on the train, you're, you're on the train and, you know, the author is in control of where you're going. Whereas in role-playing games, there's so much more room for experimentation and really like playing with that idea of who you are, what your limitations are, what your motivations are. And that's something that's been really rewarding for me as a player as well, not just as uh, someone thinking about these in like a pedagogical context, but being able to kind of explore these different ways of thinking and being in the world. Let me, I want to see whether I um, have got a, a good handle on this and can kind of sum up what I'm getting to be like the main benefits, I guess, for want of a, of a better word. So like, firstly, you've got this storytelling aspect, which I guess comes down to the whole like human's, engage with stories better than data things so that's like checkbox one but there's like kind of you can think about these scenarios in a way that's going to be more uh emotionally effective than just looking at the data of possible futures um but then because it's a game there's also a sense of personal agency and interactivity um And also this kind of playful element, which is, I guess, kind of a more positive effect and gives you kind of uh, more of an optimistic outlook because there's, I don't know, yeah, just that kind of that playfulness. And then finally, that it's open ended. So, you know, you have agency, but also there's no kind of like finishing line. Would we say that's like a good 
summation of the main points in the classroom? I I would say that's an excellent summation, but Heather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say I would say the, the same. Um, I think that uh, I do think that you you know re- regarding ha- the open endedness of it, I do think like the one caveat I will add um, is that I do think one of the responsibilities of teacher as game master is to make sure that it doesn't become too open ended. Um, you have to. I think you have to make sure when you are creating your own system, especially for a classroom, that your learning outcomes are never far from your mind, right? Like, so you are always kind of, you have a sort of goal for the students in mind. It doesn't necessarily mean winning, quote unquote. Um, It doesn't have to be competitive, um, but you do need to have some sort of, you know, some sort of end result. Like, for example, um, a friend of mine who works in the um, WCI program with me, uh, Ray Molstock, um, has has run a zombie survival role-playing game in her classroom. And for her, the end result was for the students to create a wiki um, and to kind of experiment with the, like, wiki format uh, to put together all of the knowledge that they had accumulated about surviving the apocalypse into one place that could be accessed, um, you know, by future students. And so I think, you know, you have to have some sort of, like, end product um, where you're, you're, you're asking your students to create something tangible. Um, I think that's really important, you know, in, in any sort of learning setting. But other than that, yeah, I think that's a really, really good summation of like the advantages um, of um, using these games in a classroom setting. I, so I think I, I'm, I'm aware of, of, like I said, I, I would sit here and talk all day about this, but um, we are on, on a schedule. Um, but uh, so I think maybe now is a good time to, um, to maybe uh, offer up some suggestions for um you know, people who are maybe curious about how to to bring this into their classrooms, or how to even bring this into their maybe their um, their own research, right? How can they kind of maybe use this um, for their their scholarship or pedagogy, and uh, especially maybe people who have who have maybe never you know done any kind of of you know gaming like this that maybe you know they've they've done. They play like a casual game here and there, but but something as involved as this. So just just maybe some tips or some um, so rec- recommended readings, anything like that that you might have for them as they're they're getting started out with some of this. My suggestion, as someone who has not used these games to teach, but who has run multiple games with multiple different people, um, is that one of the first things to think about as you're approaching using these games in a pedagogical context is the social bonds in your classroom that already exist. Because with any kind of experiential learning like this and any kind of kind of experimental tool that you're using, um, it can either go really, really well, or it can go incredibly horrifically poorly. (laughs) And the way that you approach it can kind of exacerbate existing social bonds, whether they're, they're, you know, for better or worse. Um, And this is not all of these things, all of these, uh, and, and by things, I mean, TTRPGs in general, I think are not necessarily better than any existing um, modes of teaching the environment, um, but they are another tool 
that can be used. And considering the best uh, usage of this tool is, you know, crucial. Yeah, um, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, so one, I think my my first suggestion to anyone considering using this in the classroom would be to start small. Um, so in other words, you don't have to make the entire semester part of a TTRPG. You could just do one week or one reading or one unit based around a role-playing game, which is actually what I will probably do when I... Um, when I implement my own um, TTRPG that I'm working on right now, it will probably not be for a whole semester. Um, so I think, you know, like Eleanor said, if you start small, if you make this relatively low stakes, um, the, <laughs> the chances of it going bad are lower. And also, if it does go bad, it's not, you know, the biggest deal in the world. Um, I also think that if you are a total novice, if you have never played any sort of role-playing game, um, you know, I, th I think um, a good place to start is actually with podcasts. I mean, that was how I got into it. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, I started out by listening to the McElroy's Adventure Zone, um, which is a D&D podcast. And that sort of, and I, I dove into that podcast knowing absolutely nothing about how D&D works. Um, and, um, you know, listening to other people play, I think, is a good, um, you know, good introduction just to kind of get a feel for it. And then from there, you know, try and find a group of people to play some sort of TTRPG. It doesn't have to be D&D, &D, but uh, like I'm going to be playing Trophy next weekend with um, a bunch of people at the uh, Gothic Nature um yearly annual conference. Um, so I think, you know, there, there's lots of opportunities even within um, the academic community to engage in these kinds of games. And usually people are very friendly to newcomers and very willing to explain and, and teach, uh, you know, teach you how to do uh, these types of games. Um, but yeah, and, and, and I think also, you know, just, just doing your research, um, there's really no shortage of um, scholarship out there that you can look at. And typically, um, scholars who write papers on implementing TTRPGs will kind of like walk you through, this is how I set up the classroom. These were the rules, you know, this is how it all worked. Um, so that can kind of give you a framework. If you look at, if you can find something similar, um, like one of my favorites that I came across in researching this topic was a create your own religion class. It was for a theology course. Um, and so basically the students like created their own cults, <laughs> which to me sounds really fun. Um, but the, uh, the author of that paper gave all of these, you know, really specific tips and um, guidelines, you know, based on his experience doing this multiple times. Um, so there really is no shortage of reading material out there. You just need to find something that's kind of like similar, but maybe not exactly the same as what you want to do. Um, and I think having some sort of inspiration, like I, I mentioned Oct Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, is kind of my inspiration for this game that I'm working on. Um, so having some sort of like text or um, franchise maybe that is sort of interesting to you that um, you could kind of model or bring some elements to into the classroom is also um, a really good kind of like, it's good to have an anchor point, I think. Um, and then I think also, uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this already, but I think also um, definitely practice first. So like run a simulation, get your friends together, uh, make sure that the rules all work and that 
you can kind of plan for certain contingencies that might arise as you're playing the game with your students. So definitely, you know, run it a few times before you actually bring it into the classroom. And I think that's it. Okay. And then just one little uh, current context based question. Um, Is it possible to do this stuff online, given that um, we can't really meet up? at the moment. I I would I would jump in and immediately say 100%. We have been running our game fully online for a year. Um, I would say that, and, and Heather can definitely expand on this, in terms of a classroom setting, it is just as possible to run this kind of project or game online as it is to run something like a writing workshop, I would say. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Although I will say, um, because I am currently teaching fully online uh, an asynchronous course right now. Um, I think it really, I don't know if there's actually one answer to that because it really depends. And Eleanor actually mentioned earlier that you have to consider existing social bonds in your classes. And that's where I think having a completely virtual course um, is problematic, especially if you're teaching in a context like mine, where you're working with first year students who are new to college and who are from all different majors because everyone at uh, SUNY Albany takes uh, the WCI course. Um, So, you know, I think it's harder to run something like this online when you lack those existing social bonds. I, I think I said earlier that I've I've been hesitant to to try to run a TTRPG with my students online for that reason. Um, and also because it's, it'll be my first time doing this as well. Um, so I think it's definitely possible. Like, absolutely. I just think that you have to be a little bit more mindful of, and also plan for things like students who are just not going to do it. You know, students who are just not going to be engaged or students who aren't going to be comfortable doing like advanced role playing. Like if you're expecting them to do like character voices or something like that, a lot of students won't feel comfortable doing that um, in any context maybe, but also, I, you know, online, I think adds a certain extra level of discomfort. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really up to your own judgment as an instructor and, to get a feel for like your own program, what the students at your institution are like, how much experience they have with gaming in general, uh, and their comfort level with technology. I mean, these are all things that play into the challenge of teaching virtually in general. But I think, you know, you have to consider all of those things in addition to um, the complications that can arise in any sort of um, TTRPG setting. Great. Again, I would love to sit here and and talk about this all day, but I think it is time to end on a roll. Uh, So quite fittingly, I've got a 12-sided die here. Uh, I'm going to give that a a toss. We'll do it twice because we've got two different guests. um, So you can both answer both questions. But the first question is, uh, number 10, what's one habit you're working on to try and be more eco-friendly? So I live (laughs) in California And for the past, uh, you know, three to four months, which I can't give a specific time because time has no meaning anymore. um, We have been, you know, it's, it's fire season again, which is lasting longer every year. And 
I have been getting these notices from SDG&E about limiting power usage. And working from home, it is fairly difficult for me to do that, but I have been doing my absolute darndest uh, to, to limit my power usage during the day um, for, and, and, of course, limit water usage, which growing up in California, I'm kind of used to doing anyways. But, um, yeah, lim- limiting power and water usage. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, since the pandemic started, for, for me, one of my weaknesses is shopping and buying things unnecessarily. Um, and since the pandemic started, it's sort of pushed me to kind of like reevaluate what's important and what things I need and what things I don't need. Um, and also it's uh, made me realize how reliant I am on Amazon, which is not, you know, the best. Uh, so I've kind of been weaning myself off of extraneous purchases. Um, I basically, I almost never purchase any sort of new clothing anymore. Almost all of the things that I buy, if I need something are secondhand, um, because I'm trying to no longer support the fast fashion industry. Um, I'm also being more mindful of like packaging and how much plastic is involved in any sort of purchase that I make. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that those are the main things for me. I mean, it's it's funny because I think now that we're all at home, at least for me, my carbon footprint, I think, has just been drastically reduced because I'm no longer commuting. I'm no longer traveling. Um, so now it's sort of about looking at like those smaller habits that can make, you know, somewhat of a difference. Yeah, great. OK. And question number two is. Uh, all right. Number five, was nature important to you as a child? I think, Heather, both of us discussed this earlier and both of us came to the conclusion that we were very strange goblin forest children who spent a lot of time, a lot of our time <laughs> as children running out and just like playing in the woods near our house uh, out of out of sight of any kind of adult supervision. Uh but luckily did not burn forests down around our ears. <laughs> I, I didn't have quite the same pyromaniac tendencies that, that Eleanor did as a child, but um, she's absolutely right about being uh, wild goblin forest children. Um, I grew up in uh, suburban uh, Northern Virginia outside of Washington, DC. And um, I was blessed to fortunately have a rather large backyard for the area that we lived in, and it was sort of half wooded, half, um, well, my parents were very avid gardeners, so it was sort of half wooded, half gardens. Um, but I would often retreat to the wooded area. And um, one of my early, earliest memories uh, from, um, I mean, it was, I, I had obviously learned to write by this point, but only just a very, you know, rudimentary sense. But I remember um, creating this whole, like, set of lore about the squirrels that lived in in the trees behind my house and there was this whole history and there were warring factions and I mean it was very it was actually very Dungeons and Dragons-esque if I'm um, you know reflecting on it now but yeah I think um, you know nature was very important to me as a child and my parents also kind of encouraged me a lot I, I think they just wanted me out of the house really but um, they did encourage encourage me to spend a lot of time outdoors. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, thank you both so much again for 
coming on. Um, is there somewhere where our listeners can find out more about you guys, um, social media, websites, anything like that? Um, I am kind of a, a social media recluse. I, uh, <laughs> I don't, I, I think, uh, especially because of the climate right now, um, in the country, I kind of tend to avoid it. Um, but if anyone does want to get in touch with me, um, email would actually be the best way to reach me. Um, and it's, it's just, uh, H A Duncan, D U N C A N at albany.edu. Um, or alternatively, you can also find, uh, my information on the SUNY Albany WCI website. Um, if you just Google SUNY Albany WCI, you'll find, um, information there about, um, me and also about our program. Uh, and I have the same, I'm kind of a social media recluse. So the answer to that is unfortunately no, but (laughs) You can certainly find many resources on tabletop role-playing games and so on by, um, you know, I would suggest, uh, honestly, I would suggest going onto Twitter and searching for terms like TTRPG, um, Dungeons and Dragons on Twitter and looking um, and just, and finding some, if, if this is something you're, you're really interested in getting into and in learning more about, um, there are several different kind of conversations and, um, uh, uh, debates happening right now in the TTRPG community on varying levels of, uh, you know, kind of what's, what's important. And a lot of people, very creative, independent, um, writers and artists and, uh, 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 uh game designers doing some extremely cool work out there. So I would definitely recommend following folks who are doing that. Yeah. If I started listing, we would be here for another half hour. So (laughs) (laughs) I also wanted to add that um, if anyone is interested in my other scholarship that is uh, not based around uh, tabletop role-playing games, I do have an article coming out. Um, I believe in the next issue of Isle, um, and it's actually about uh, Hari Kunzru's novel White Tears and about trauma and um, environmental metaphors in that novel. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you both again for, for joining us. And thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Asley's EcoCast. Uh, If you have an idea for an episode, whether you want to feature your own work or you would like for us to reach out and have someone on, you can send us an email at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. Asley.ecocast at gmail.com is our email. Or you can find us on Twitter at Asley underscore EcoCast. Uh, That's it for us this time. Thanks. Bye.